Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For much too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality in leadership and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We absolutely must change this, and I hope that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible in a way that works for you and for your families, so you can make the decisions that make our world and our organizations better places. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about giving parents the support and space to progress to senior leadership in a way that works for them and their families. We have lots of free events and also lots of resources on leadersplus.org where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave or securing a promotion as a working parent or thriving or surviving depending how you look at it as a dual career couple. We also have an award-winning global fellowship program for working parents who have big dreams for their careers but don't want to sacrifice everything for it. You will join a tight-knit supportive group of people. You'll get space to think about what you want for your life, for your family, for your career, a senior leader mentor and a lot of targeted support in order to get you where you would like to be. And you can find all that on leadersplus.org forward slash fellowship for the details. The next application deadline is on 20th March 2024 and you can download the brochure on leadersplus.org. Today I'm talking to Dr. Jessica Calarco about what role women play as a social safety net and what needs to change. It's a bit more of a political conversation than usual and the guest has been suggested by one of our listeners. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So a very warm welcome Jess to the podcast. Great to have you with us. Why don't we start with you introducing who you are, what you do for work and who's in your family? Sure. I'm Jess Calarco. I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I study inequalities in education and family life. I'm also uh, the mom of two young kids. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Wonderful. And this is a question I ask all my guests. No worries if you can't think of anything. What is the one thing that you used to believe about combining a big senior career with young children that you're not subscribing to anymore, that you've changed your mind on? Oh, that's a good question. I would say that it's, I would say I used to believe that I could do most of it myself without sort of sacrificing the quality of anything. You know, I think I I went into motherhood with aspirations of being, you know, bringing the same level of attention, bringing the same level of care to the work that I was doing with my family that I was also doing in my job as a professor and kind of assuming that I could keep operating at that high level without kind of sacrificing anything on any end. And I think that became very clear very quickly how impossible that is to maintain those tremendously high standards without high levels of support. And can I ask how you came to be at peace with that? I mean, I think it's an ongoing tension. And that's partly what motivates the research that I do is trying to understand what are the supports that are necessary for people to be able to have 
both the kind of career that they want and also the kind of family relationships that they want to be able to sustain? And what does that look like? And what kinds of what role can policy in particular play in helping families to navigate those challenges and those tensions and do so in a way that, that is as productive and as meaningful as possible? If there was one recommendation, I know it's very difficult for an academic to shout down on one thing, but I'm going to challenge you anyways. If there was one recommendation that you would like to see implemented that would really help women get to senior roles, what sticks at the forefront of your mind? It's definitely hard to narrow it down to a single thing in terms of recommendations. I think we need to reframe the way that we think of women as mothers by default. I think that is one of the biggest changes that we could make because we train young girls from the time they're old enough to hold a baby doll to think of themselves as future mothers, to think of themselves as the ones who are naturally best suited to care for children. And from there, it becomes an easy jump to if they're the best for caring for children, then they must also be the best at caregiving in all of its capacities for the sick, for the elderly, for the disabled, for anyone who needs a little bit of extra support. And so I think it's that sort of equation of womanhood and motherhood that leads to the kinds of cultural defaults uh, that we have in, in American society and in many other places that make it easy for women to be pushed into those kinds of default caregiving roles in ways that men could also do. And then also in ways that make it easy to underinvest in the kinds of labor that women are doing for their families and also for their communities to devalue caregiving labor because it's assumed to be something that women are naturally good at and something that women are best suited for. It's easy to say that, though they just shouldn't be paid as much for that kind of labor. And so I think that creates the kinds of conditions that allow the rest of the economy to downplay women's work, make it harder for women to advance in, in, in other types of careers, and also easier for them to be disproportionately tasked with burdensome labor um, at home and in their communities that, that doesn't give them the kinds of rewards that other work does. And can you paint a picture? What does that cultural default look like in your mind or in your research, I should say? Sure. And so I think we can think about the idea that women are the ones who are disproportionately tasked with caring for children, caring for the elderly, caring for people who are sick or disabled, caring for even stepping in for colleagues when they get sick and need to miss work, that women are often the ones who are kind of by default stepping into those kinds of caregiving roles or kind of filling in for the social safety net, filling in in places where our employers or our society or our policymakers have not fully invested in making sure that people have the support that they need to be successful. And so I think that's where women are the ones who sort of are either feel as though they have to step into those roles or are pushed into those kinds of roles. And that kind of default status makes it easy for us to just assume that women should and will fill that role and makes it easy for us to underinvest in the kinds of support systems that would actually make these kinds of roles more sustainable in the long term. I really love the title of your book. I have rarely seen such a good book title. It really summarizes the big issue, holding it together, how women became America's safety net. When you did the research on your PhD, I'm interested if anything changed in your thinking. What was the biggest change? What surprised you when you did it? In doing this research, I would say the change in my thinking was understanding that this was not just a problem of individual families in terms of what they had to navigate, but the product of a much larger set of historical and political and economic forces that were forcing women into these kinds of positions. And so I talk about in the book how 
really this goes back to you know the billionaires and the big corporations uh, who I call the sort of engineers and profiteers of the American society. And they've really tried to persuade us that we can be what I call a, a DIY society, that we can get by without the kind of robust social safety net that many of our peer countries take for granted. And the reality, though, is that we need the protection that that kind of safety net would offer. And so what we've done is we've forced women to stand in for that social safety net instead. And so what I show in the book is that because of that kind of a system, women are the ones who are disproportionately pushed into caregiving roles and the ones who are also shouldering most of the burden of the underpaid and unpaid labor in our economy. And it's it's taking a serious toll on their, their physical well-being, their emotional well-being, their financial well-being. And of course, those those costs aren't born equally. They're particularly high for women in low and middle income families who often have no choice but to carry more risk than what they can manage. But at the same time, even women in higher income families that I interviewed and surveyed for my book, they're struggling because we've left them with sort of a morally fraught choice between either shouldering that risk for their families and their communities or pushing it onto other women who are more vulnerable by outsourcing things like childcare or house cleaning or elder care labor. And so the problem with that system is that it's not only unfair, but also unsustainable. And it's leaving Americans sicker and sadder and more stressed than our counterparts in other countries. And at the same time, I talk about in the book how we've had a chance to change this with Build Back Better during the pandemic, for example, a series of policy proposals that the Biden administration tried to pass. We rejected it and we're stuck essentially with this status quo. And I talk about how we could blame individuals um, you know, for not doing enough, but we really have to consider the larger myths that those kind of engineers and profiteers are selling us, myths like the myth of meritocracy that they use to try to delude us into believing that we don't actually need better policies and also to divide us by race and class and gender and to try to persuade us not to fight together for the kind of social safety net that we actually need and, and that all of us deserve. It is so interesting to hear this because we have a fellowship community of parents who want to progress their careers despite the odds and who are exactly always feel not, I mean, they don't always feel like they fail, but often they have these moments of feeling utter failure, either not being a good enough parent, not a be, being a good enough daughter or not a good enough leader. And what you are saying essentially is it is not you as an individual, it is the system that has these unrealistically high expectations and it's part of the history of it being a reliant on that workforce, that caring workforce. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think we have, a, particularly in, in the United States, um, but certainly in many other countries, we have a strong culture of individualism, where we tell people that you should be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that you should be able to make it on your own without high levels of support. And I mean, that that kind of myth has a purpose in the sense that it means that our governments and our employers don't need to invest as much in policies to provide support for people, don't need to invest in things like universal paid family leave or universal child care or universal health care or you know the, the other kinds of supports that our systems could provide for us if we think that we're supposed to be able to do it ourselves. And the problem with those kinds of individualistic myths or, or ideas, things like the myth of meritocracy, is that it does lead us to blame ourselves. Because if we're supposed to be able to do all of this stuff without support, then we only have ourselves to blame when we struggle. And so I think that's, you know, the one of the key pieces of, of where this kind of guilt comes from is not only our lack of a social safety net or, or the, the underinvestments that we've made in those kinds of social programs, but 
on top of that, the kind of individualistic attitudes and cultures and mythologies that perpetuate this idea that people should be able to do it themselves. Even though the structures aren't same. So here in the UK, the childcare costs have just absolutely skyrocketed as a very practical example. And obviously, this it's a highly skilled profession, childcare, that isn't paid enough at all. But it's still very challenging on a day-to-day basis. I mean, what what do you think then about the cost of all those things? So what's your moral and policy advice on paying for childcare and paying for a cleaner, just on a practical level? I mean, I think we have to take childcare out of the market in the sense that it is not. I talk about in my book how childcare is one of a number of services that are extremely labor intensive to provide and thereby doesn't have a high profit potential unless you charge families extremely high costs to be able because, you know, at least in the US, we have infant rooms, for example, typically have a requirement of one staff member for every four children. And so that means that you're dividing the full cost of that person's labor across four families plus additional costs for rent and supplies and electricity and all of the things that go into providing childcare. And that's, you know, that in and of itself, if we want to make sure that that childcare provider is paid a living wage, has access to benefits, that those costs are very quickly going to become extremely high. And so essentially that system can only sustain itself either by underpaying the workers who do that labor or by charging extremely high rates for the families who are receiving that care. And oftentimes it's extremely high rates and exploitation and underpayment of childcare providers. And so really that that's a place where government funding is, is perfectly designed uh, to fill in those gaps, to make public childcare an option, a universal affordable option for all families, as many countries have done and have shown that it can be done highly effectively and highly equitably when it comes to making sure that all families have access to low cost, uh, high quality care. Um, It takes public investment, but it's the kind of thing that is necessary in those kinds of industries where profit is not possible or can only be had with extremely high costs and also where exploitation is rampant with hugely detrimental consequences for the the low-income women who, who do that labor, who are disproportionately women of color and also immigrant women as well. Interesting. And do you see any other solutions that just looking around the world that where you do see systems that work well, or is it a case of redesigning it from scratch? I mean, I think certainly there's great examples to be had elsewhere. A universal paid family leave, especially extended paid family leave, can also go a long way toward alleviating some of the burden for families and reducing pressure. Research has shown that the more involved men are from the birth of their children during the first six, eight weeks of life, the more involved they tend to be for the rest of their children's lives. And so making sure that it's not just women who are benefiting from paid family leave programs, but also fathers and other parents, and making sure that those kinds of leave programs are equally accessible to all. In the U.S., for example, we don't offer any guaranteed paid family leave. The most that families can qualify for, and not even all parents can qualify for, is 12 weeks of guaranteed unpaid leave. Some employers offer more than that, but it's on a very case-by-case basis and disproportionately goes to the highest income elite professional workers and not to those who are struggling to make ends meet day to day. I interviewed one mom who's a school bus driver who went back to work just days after giving birth and was bleeding through pads in the seat as she was driving kids to school because she was the primary provider for her family. And that was the only way that she could make sure that they kept a roof over their heads and food on the table was by going back to work basically immediately after she gave birth. And that's 
that kind of policy eliminates the dignity that we need and deserve in our system and that all people should have access to. And it certainly makes it harder for families to make the choices that are right for them and also makes the childcare system more difficult to sustain as well, because we have to have more infant spots, which are the most costly to provide. And so I think that's a place where we could invest more in things like paid family leave, particularly extended paid family leave as a way to reduce some of the burden on the childcare system and also make it so that parents are able to recover after childbirth and make sure that they have the kind of care situation that they need for their families early on. Mm. I'm sure you are presenting this important research to senior decision makers, to people who are interested in making the world a better place for working parents and therefore the people around them as well and the whole system. But I'm interested... How do you convince them of this? Because obviously I'm, you know, I'm talking to this and I just want to let you talk. I don't even want to ask you questions because I think your message is really important. But the important bit is not what people like me think who are already bought in. It's about how we buy in people who don't think about this on a daily level. Have you had any experiences of communicating this research? Yeah. And so I think there's a challenge here, at least in the American system, when it comes to policymakers, and that there certainly are policymakers who are very much on board with this message. But part of the problem actually stems from where money comes from in politics, and that there are, at least in the US, money matters a great deal in terms of who is able to retain power. And so by virtue of that, the politicians, particularly on the right wing side of the equation, but you know, across the board as well, are highly dependent on donations from big businesses and corporations who play a huge role in dictating which policymakers ultimately get elected because you know, the more you can spend on elections, the more likely you are to win. The challenges that go along with that is that big businesses and big corporations have an interest in keeping taxes low and not having to pay for things like benefits for their employees or for society as a whole. And so they are actively working against efforts to try to implement things like a stronger social safety net. I talk in the book about how essentially we can do a postmortem on Build Back Better and figure out you know, what killed this policy that gave us a shot at having things like higher minimum wage laws and universal paid family leave and affordable childcare. And really, it stems back to the money that was donated to politicians to persuade them to kill the bill. And so I think that's where persuading policymakers there's potential there. But if anything, I think that actually the solution might be to persuade enough people to reject the myths that have led them to vote for those politicians in the first place who are willing to make those choices. And that really what it takes is rejecting the myths that divide us, rejecting the idea that we are, you know, men against women or black against white or low income against high income, rejecting those divisions and recognizing that we all stand to benefit from a stronger social safety net. And that if we look to the policymakers who are willing to support those kinds of policies, that we can have a potential in electing them despite the kinds of economic investments that are being made to push us otherwise. Mm. Ages ago, back in the days when I did my master's in social anthropology, I read something around Mexico, which apparently there are a lot of really wealthy people in Mexico, but it's also one of the most unequal countries in the Americas. And apparently that really has an impact on the overall happiness, both on the rich people and the poor. I mean, this was years ago, so maybe completely wrong, but it chimes with what you've just said, that actually there's benefit for all of us if there is a ground level of support. Absolutely. And I think there's actually research showing that the more unequal we are as a society, the more divided we tend to be in our attitudes toward each other, because there's more benefit to having someone else that you can look down on, essentially, and to feel better than when it comes to your moral superiority. And so the more unequal we are as a society, the more we tend to 
fight for ourselves instead of fighting for the good of society, because there's more risk involved in potentially falling down the ladder, essentially. And this actually leads to what I call in the book, the guilt of, it kind of pushes back against the guilt of complicity. I talked to one higher income couple, for example, who realized during the pandemic that the childcare center that they were relying on for their children was staffed primarily by low income Latina women who were deeply underpaid and who were struggling with overwork, oftentimes working multiple jobs. And they said, look, we feel really bad about this. But at the same time, there's nothing we can do because we need that childcare to be able to work our own jobs. And so it's sort of like, what should I do? Should I just, you know, there's this pressure to just hoard whatever resources we can muster and kind of sit on them and protect them because, you know, what could happen to us if we lose access to that kind of support? And so I think it's how the, the more unequal our system is, even when we recognize that we're part of these kinds of webs of exploitation, there's little incentive to do anything about it because we're worried about what might happen to us if we, you know, lose the minimal foothold that we might have on stability in a deeply unequal society. Mm, interesting. So a lot of things go through my head when I hear you talk and this element of complicity really chimes with me. I think there is something in the UK specifically where you do obviously, you know, a lot of people working in nurseries or childcare centres, as you call them, they are paid the legal minimum wage, but they're not necessarily paid the living wage, which is what the Living Wage Foundation calls the wage that you need to have a dignity of being able to buy your child a birthday present or something like that. And, and I, don't, I don't mean an extraordinary birthday present, you know, a five pounds book or something. And I'm interested, I know your book is about policies, but just how do you translate that into your own life? How do you give up? I guess you can't, you do have to use the chair. So you can, by my rambled on a question, you can see how much this makes me think, but you do need to somehow use those nurseries. I personally, I can't afford a nanny. So what are the options? How do you deal with that? Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, this is where I would say that we've been pushed into these kinds of impossible choices, into these kinds of morally fraught choices where we have to choose between either taking on the risk ourselves, taking on all that responsibility for ourselves, whether that's caring for our children or cleaning our houses or cooking our meals or pushing that labor on to someone else. And there's ways to change the system. You know, I think that the solution really is to raise minimum wages to make sure that the minimum wages that those workers are being paid are enough to be living wages. And that that's really only possible through strong government intervention and investments in terms of making those kinds of services sustainable and affordable, or by reducing the kinds of pressures that are on workers to, you know, put in as many hours at the office, to put in as many hours on the job so that we do have more time to care for our families, to cook our meals, to clean our homes. And so I think those are sort of the two options is either to push more for investments in terms of providing the kind of labor that, that we all need to be productive workers or to make work less demanding so that we have more time and more energy to do that kind of labor ourselves and to share it more equitably without the kind of pressures that go with that. I really don't think this is a situation that individuals can solve for themselves. And that's where the guilt comes from, because there's no solution. There is no right way to go through that we either have to do what we can to support our families and be comfortable with the guilt that comes along with that or try to do it all ourselves and potentially put ourselves at risk of burnout and breakdown in the process instead. Mm. So I'm hearing a very strong message that who you vote for is pretty important in this debate. The other question I have is about employers. Now obviously employers individually can't be tasked with fixing the world. But I know that there are a lot of senior leaders listening to this podcast who are really keen to drive change. What would be your message to them? Would they 
should focus on if they want to help improve the system. Yeah, and I hope that they are. And, and certainly I've talked to some senior leaders in, in corporations who are very interested in supporting their employees and trying to find ways to create more sustainable workforces where employees have the option to, you know, have the flexibility to take on care responsibilities at home or have the flexibility to take time off when their kids are sick, you know, or supported in, in not having too high of a burden when it comes to expectations for labor. And my, my worry there is that oftentimes the employees who benefit most from those kinds of flexible work policies or employer benefits are disproportionately the high income professional workers who already have a lot of advantages in many societies, including both the US and the UK. And so I think really my challenge to leaders would be to think beyond, you know, their immediate employees, think about their contractors, think about the workers who work in the factories that are supplying the products that they purchase, think about the people who are dependent on the products they make or on the services that they use and think more sustainably about what would it take to change our system to change the profit based, you know, system that we live in, to push more of those profits back to the people in ways that make not only life easier, and more manageable for, you know, the immediate employees that you see every day in your, you know, C-suite offices or or thereabouts, but also everyone else in the economy. And what would that look like to think beyond just the immediate environment and toward a more sustainable environment for everyone in the society and and globally, ideally, as well? Wonderful. Thank you very much. And if a working parent is hearing this and wants to do one thing this week just to help move towards a society where women aren't the main safety net obviously in the UK there is more of a safety net than the US we should say and I'm sure in many of the other countries where people are listening from that's the same but if there was one thing that someone could do this week to support the movement towards a better safety net for working parents what would be that one thing? Trying to come together. I talk about in the book how what we really need is a union of care, uh, where we're holding it together as opposed to trying to hold it together ourselves. And so I think that means looking for other people who are like-minded, who are willing to fight for this, and starting coalitions, starting to find people who can, you know, when it comes time to get out the vote, when it comes time to, you know, making phone calls or making donations or working on behalf of those people who are in positions to make these policy changes that you've already got your team ready, that you already have the people around you who can help to support and push for that kind of change and who can be your sounding board in working through some of these difficult challenges when it comes to navigating the problems and and someone who can help to sort of ungaslight you in terms of recognizing that this is not you, this is society, and that there are things we can do as a society, particularly when we work collectively to try to overcome the challenges that we face. Wonderful. And where can people find out more about you and find out about your book? Sure. So my website is jessicacalarco.com or you can find me on Twitter at Jessica Calarco. I'm also, my new book is called Holding It Together, How Women Became America's Safety Net. And that is available or will be available June 4th, 2024 from Portfolio Penguin. It's available now for pre-order and will be available for purchase at all major booksellers. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jess. It was great to speak to you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. And a special thank you to all of those of you who have connected with me on LinkedIn in the last few weeks. I really, really love hearing from listeners and hearing how you enjoyed the show. So it means a lot. Thank you so much. If you would like to be in touch in real life, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. It is such a fantastic community of working parents supporting each other to find a way to get careers where you can make a big difference in senior roles but also do that unapologetically in a way that works 
for us. And if you want to apply, then the deadline is 20th of March. You can download the brochure for the program on leadersplus.org. Podcasting is also quite a male-dominated environment. If you look at the top charting podcasts, especially outside of the kids and family space, very often it's all led by men. I can't remember the numbers, but it is very male-dominated. Just take a look at the charts. And interestingly enough, more females than males listen to podcasts. So another unequal space. And thank you for supporting this podcast by listening to it. But if you want to help us I guess have more influence in the space then please do help by sharing it with your friends and by leaving a five-star review thank you so much to all of those of you who've done that already have a wonderful week